0: Be Christ's church, impact the valley, reach the world, all for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, then go ahead and grab it. We will be in the book of 1 Corinthians for our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5 together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We are on the countdown to Christmas. That's hard to believe, right? Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. It seems like just yesterday we were loading up and heading out to summer camp, but here we are, ready or not. So what is Christmas? What is Christmas? Well, it's the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. I hope that everyone in this room knows that. It shouldn't come as a huge surprise, although I, I do fear with the The rising culture that we are a part of, even something like Christmas, can begin to lose its connection to Christ. and the commercialization of, well, everything, (laughs) Jesus just often gets left out in the cold. It's it's just a winter holiday now. And the worst part is, is that Christians in America are not usually a whole lot different from the unbeliever's during this season we enjoy the lights we enjoy the decorations we enjoy the meals we enjoy the christmas movies on hallmark we sit on the couch we watch all 86 of them that have the same two plots <laughs> we anxiously look for the perfect present for our family for your husband for your wife for your kids and it's weird i'm at the age now where like family members will ask hey what do you want for christmas and I don't know, like, I don't need anything at all. We enjoy the time together, we enjoy the music, and there isn't anything wrong with this. It just isn't any different from the unbeliever in America. There, there's nothing distinctly Christian about how we often spend the holiday season. And this reality leads to my next question. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Again, you, you answer rightly because we're celebrating the birth of our Savior. Probably sitting there like, man, the student pastor's struggling if he needs us to answer these questions for him. But have you ever stopped to to ask, Why do we celebrate Christmas? That's a question we should be asking. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, trying to figure out why it is that we do what we do. It's good to ask questions. The reason we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas is because he did not stay a baby. We love the Christmas season, but we are an Easter people. We celebrate his birth because he grew up and laid down his life as a payment for sin. The birth is significant because of the rest of the story. And we understand this, right? If you were to pick up a biography, for instance, of Abraham Lincoln, just as a random example, you, you might read a couple chapters, 40, 50 pages, on his birth and his early childhood. Not because you necessarily care about him being an obscure farm boy in Indiana, but because he grows up to be president of the United States, right? If he did not grow up to be president, if he just stayed even as a, a lawyer in Indiana, I doubt you would have read his biography, right? We wouldn't necessarily care. The birth of Christ is significant, yes, because this isn't an ordinary baby. This is the Son of God who came down to redeem us, and He grew up. And the reason I chose this text for this particular time is because we need to collectively think deeply about the gospel message. Focusing on the birth of Christ for a season is great. It is great. But when we talk about Jesus to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers in the month of December, we need to remember that we have a message to tell them. Yes, Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem, but he grew up and was crucified for our sins and raised on the third day. This is our message. And this is the message that Paul desperately wanted the Corinthians to understand. And this is why we need to spend Christmas at the cross. So hopefully by now you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5 for our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5 says this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling... And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray, and then we will dive in. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, We thank you for the truth that we have heard sung. We thank you for the birth of our Savior, but we thank you also that he grew up, lived a sinless life, laid down his life on the cross for us, that he's raised, that he's alive, that he is reigning even now at your right hand. So I pray that as we look at this text, you would speak because we need to hear. I pray you would fix our eyes, our hearts, in the busyness on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray it for our good, for your glory, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I don't think this is news to anyone in this room, but we live in a day that's unique to almost every other time in history. And that for a variety of reasons. We don't have time to cover all of them, right? But one reason we are unique is because the Word, and I don't mean here the Bible or even Jesus, but the Word, written and spoken, no longer carries the same weight it once did. We are a people who love images rather than words. We live on Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, because we like pictures. We don't like words. Even compared to other periods in history, you might argue, well, there are plenty of periods of history where art was very prominent. And that's true. You can go to Europe even right now. You can go to these cathedrals and see see paintings that will take your breath away. But we live in a time and in a culture where the image is just all-encompassing. It is all around us. And this wasn't always the case. There was a time where people valued the word. There was a time, for instance, in this country where Christians would visit multiple churches during the week, not because they're frustrated at one, but because they just wanted to hear another sermon. They would go from place to place to hear the word preached. They sought out opportunities to come and to listen. They care deeply about words and messages, how they were spoken, and this just isn't really the case anymore. We're coming up to political season. I know everybody's favorite time of year. But let me, let me ask you this. When was the last time you sat down and listened to a politician give a speech? Like, not the debate where it's kind of entertaining because they just yell e- at each other and like nothing ever gets done, but like you sat down, like, I'm gonna listen for the next 45 minutes to an hour to this guy talk. Like, there might be a couple of you that have done it recently, but I'm willing to bet most of us haven't, right? Why? We prefer the sound bites, we prefer the images that take two minutes as opposed to the whole hour. The audience to which Paul is writing was not unfamiliar with this. Corinth was a part of the Roman Empire, but it boasted a Greek heritage. And if you know anything about the Greeks, they were famous for their speakers, their philosophers. Names like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Athens was not far from Corinth, I think about 50 miles away. And Luke describes the Athenians in Acts 17.21 as those who would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, you might say, well, that's not Corinth, and you're right. But the ethos within the culture wouldn't have been that different. And in fact, when Paul leaves Athens in Acts 17, in Acts 18, he goes to Corinth. So this is in his head as he begins to write a letter to them. And he saw the culture of both, and he's resolved to preach the gospel in a simple way. He wasn't going to get caught up in, in trying to impress or give something new just for the sake of being new. He was there to tell a message. And that culture really isn't that much different from our culture. We want something new all the time. Right, I, I can speak as a, a male, I, I'll check ESPN in like five minute intervals just to see if there's a new headline, right? What's new, what's new, what's new? We want to be entertained. We want something to be thrilled by. There's not a whole lot of difference between them and us. We long to be impressed just like they did. But that's not the way Paul spoke to the Corinthians. Look at verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, When I came to you, I did not preach the testimony of God in a way to try to make myself look good. He wasn't after the applause of the people because, oh my goodness, Paul's such a great speaker. He says, I was there to tell you a message, to declare the testimony of God. He was a herald. He was a messenger. His preaching, he says, was not with lofty speech. It's not lofty. It's not high. It's not over the people's head, but sounds good, right? Paul did not show up and use a bunch of 50-cent words just to try to impress people. Like, have you ever been a part of a conversation with someone? It happens all the time in, um, in theological conversations. People just try to use these big words instead of having a conversation in which everybody can understand because it like, apparently establishes, establishes some sort of credibility. Like They know what they're talking about just because they can use technical language. Paul didn't play that game. He was there to preach the truth of Christ. And he was going to do so in a way that's clear and understandable. He says the testimony of God matters and you need to understand it. And so focused was he on this task. Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucifies. He says, I'm not concerned. I'm not preaching in this lofty speech. I've got one message to tell you. I'm not concerned with anything else but this one topic. There's one prevailing idea in my head, and it's gonna stay there. He has one message to tell the Corinthians. He is intentional, right? He is decided to act in this way, he is resolved. Nothing is going to deter him from this commitment. Some of you know that I enjoy books. I love to read. In fact, I've even, I think I've said up here that my goal, one of my goals is to have a library. Like, I love books. And my, my wife and I went and visited a few weeks ago as a kind of getaway. We went to Monticello, which if you know Monticello is the, the home of Thomas Jefferson because, you know, I'm a nerd and my wife loves me. So she was a trooper. She came with me. And while we were there, I went to the, the gift shop and I purchased a little wooden desk ornament. all it is. With uh, a quote from Jefferson on it. And it's sitting on my desk at home. It says, I cannot live without books. And it's sitting on my desk. I see it every day. I, I love books and I love especially to read old dead theologians. I love him. And one of my favorites who has helped me so much over the last few years of my life and who has really helped to shape how I view all of reality, and I don't say that lightly, like seeing everything in connection to God. And this man lived in colonial New England, so he lived in the colonies before the American Revolution. He was a pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He's viewed as one, if not the greatest mind that America has ever produced. Like, not just philosopher, not just theologian, but just the greatest sheer mind America has ever produced. And I love this man. I'll say from the outset, like, he isn't the easiest to read, but he is worth the effort. If you're hungry to know God, then Jonathan Edwards is a gold mine. But when Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old, he began writing over the course of, I believe, about a year, what would end up being 70, 7-0 resolutions for his life. These were statements. This is what I'm resolved to do in my life. These were going to shape how he lived, how he spent his time. There's 70 of them, Included four, just so you kind of get a taste. Number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Everything I do, I want to have as its end the glory of God. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. I want to study the Bible so much that over the course of time, I can see I know the word of God number 55 resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments that'll change the way you live these are amazing there's 70 of them and even more he was 19 years old when he wrote his 70 resolutions I did not think that well when I was 19 years old. I'm 29 now. I still don't think that well. He was resolved to live in an intentional way. He didn't want any moment wasted in his life. Paul was resolved too. He had decided no matter what others were thinking about no matter what the important topic of the day was he was going to be about one idea and we're often the opposite we are tied only to the present we are subject to the tyranny of the urgent we care more about whether or not our team's going to win the championship what this politician said or didn't say what this coworker may have done we move from task to task without much thought outside of just simply completing that task and in doing so we miss the connection to what god has done and is doing we fail to see god working in the the small seemingly insignificant moments of our lives we miss out on joy We miss out on opportunities to to serve or to share because we aren't looking. It takes hard work to live intentionally. And we just often aren't willing to pay the price. Paul was consumed with a passion to know Jesus Christ. Nothing was going to deter him from this. Nothing was going to throw him off course. He had decided, you see it, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need some of this resolve. We need to to see Christ as the all-consuming joy and purpose and passion of our lives. We need to understand that he is why we have been made. We need to understand the glory of salvation and hell's horrors. And we need to live like we actually believe it. What is the point of life? Some of you might be asking that. Maybe not out loud, but you're asking. What is the point of life? Jesus Christ. This is what we are to be about in every aspect of our lives. Now, when he he says he will know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, does that mean the cross is the only important part of our faith? As if everything else can kind of be cast aside as irrelevant. Can, Can everything just be set aside? This isn't Jesus or him crucified, so we don't really need it. There's plenty of churches that say that. But of course not. Of course not. And one huge reason is because 1 Corinthians continues on. (laughs) Paul continues with the letter and addresses many theological points. He talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about dealing with sin in the church. He talks about the resurrection. Paul cared greatly about the whole counsel of God. And he cared about seeing the implications of Christ and Him crucified lived out in the church. The necessity of doctrine is never in question what this statement does show is that Paul understood clearly the importance of salvation, of our need to be saved, and how that salvation was accomplished. Because it was on the cross that our sin is propitiated. It was on the cross that we are delivered from the wrath of God. Where we find forgiveness. Without the cross, We have no hope of redemption. We have no hope of reconciliation to God. We have no hope of eternal life. The cross is central. So at Christmas, what we must remember, what we must have in our head, is that our hope lies not just in the manger, but on the cross and in the empty tomb. We celebrate rightly the innocence of the baby Jesus. We see his humility on display. We put up our nativity scenes. We sing these wonderful old hymns, and that's great. But we must be resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified on every day of the year. There is never a time, there is never a season in your life In which you don't need to be fixed on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul understood this. Now, we need to have that same type of commitment. And he goes on to say, look at verse 3. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much Trembling. Here we see the contrast between Paul and the professional speakers that the Corinthians were used to seeing, that the Greeks boasted of. Those speakers, they walk into the arena, if you will. They come before their audience. They're self-confident. They look strong. They're there to persuade. They're there to entertain. Paul doesn't look like that. Paul doesn't have the bodily presence like the others. He doesn't look like much compared to them. He says, when I was with you, I was with you in, in weakness. I wasn't there in strength. You wouldn't have looked at me and said, yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about. He looks the part. He says, I was with you in weakness. In weakness. And there's also an added burden that the others, these speakers, just know nothing about. One that goes deeper than the physical. Do you see it? He says, I was there with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. When he says fear and much trembling, he's speaking about the weightiness of the gospel. Of preaching before the face of God. Of God, Fear and trembling have a connection to worshiping God throughout the scriptures. This is how we approach God in his holiness. In fear and trembling. Even as adopted children through Christ, we don't come strutting into the throne room of God like we own the place. Think of Isaiah. Think of John. These men throughout scripture who are far more righteous than we are, they come into the presence of God and they fall flat on their face as if dead. Because in seeing the holiness of God, they see themselves for the first time rightly. So when Paul stood up to proclaim the message of Christ and him crucified, he understood the weight of the task. It's, it's hard to convey the seriousness of preaching to someone who has never borne that responsibility. Like Preaching is, is not like teaching. It's not like getting up and giving a lesson or giving a presentation at your, your work. It's, it's not even like giving a speech. The difficulty in preaching has nothing to do with the fear of public speaking. When the preacher opens his mouth, he's proclaiming the word of God. This is fundamentally different from any other act of public speaking. The preacher in that moment is responsible to almighty God for how clearly he articulates God's truth. So when you look up at me right now, you see a person standing up, talking, I pray you see more than that because you're hungry for the word. But when I look out and see you, I see souls who will stand before the judgment seat of God, who will give an account for your life. Heaven and hell are on the line with every word that comes out of the mouth of the preacher. It's a serious task. It's not an easy task. It's not a light task. I will be called to account for every syllable that I utter. John Piper has has said it well. He says, what gives preaching its seriousness is that the mantle of the preacher, kind of what he dons as he stands behind the pulpit and proclaims the word of God, he says, is that the mantle of the preacher is soaked with the blood of Jesus and singed with the fire of hell. It's as if at the moment when you're, you're preaching, you kind of hear two things going on simultaneously. You can hear the saints singing in heaven, and you can hear the screams of the damned on the other side. Is it any wonder that Paul says it's with fear and much trembling that I proclaimed to you the gospel? He knows what is at stake. The Corinthians are under the wrath of God. If all they hear is another speaker who's there to entertain, they'll continue on the path to hell. They will be lost eternally. And it's the same here. If all you're here to do is just listen to this guy talk, and then I'm going to go home, man, you will be lost eternally. Paul knows what's on the line, and he refuses to play games with the gospel or to live for the applause of other people. It will benefit no one eternally. It's a serious task. Unless you think this is something only for the preacher, every time you share the gospel, this is the burden you also carry a serious task he says verse 4 and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power by preaching in in a simple clear manner he's demonstrating he's making it clear that the power to save is not in him it's in the spirit His words were not in plausible words of wisdom. I'm not trying to be clever. I'm not trying to be cute. He wasn't trying to manipulate through some rhetorical technique. He preached the gospel so that when sinners believed, it's obvious God's the one doing it. His goal was clarity, not wit. And it's no different today. The power to save lies in the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of sinners. No one comes to genuine saving faith in Christ because I, or Pastor Daniel, are clever. James Denny, a a Scottish theologian on the topic of preaching, he said, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Can't do it. They're mutually exclusive. If you are here to impress to make yourself look good, you will diminish the work of Christ. But if you're here to elevate Christ, to show that he is mighty to save, then your role is to preach the gospel clearly and sit down. And that means not only the person preaching, but you yourself, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. We must be clear on who Jesus is and what he has done. Why is this important? Look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's because our faith, your faith must rest entirely in Christ long after the preacher is gone and the sermon is over. If you believe in Christ because you were convinced because, hey, that, that preacher was funny. He's, he seems smart. Then when life gets hard, you'll bail. If, you, if your coworker comes to faith in Christ because you seem smart and you checkmated all their arguments, when life gets tough, they'll leave. I'll say it this way. Clever words aren't helpful when your spouse is dying of cancer. You need Christ. Lofty words that sound great, they aren't enough when the marriage is dissolving. You need Christ. Rhetorical flourish, it isn't useful when when you lose your job a week before Christmas and you don't know how you're going to pay for the mortgage or the rent, let alone buying presents. You need Christ. So why do we celebrate Christmas? Why are we overjoyed to speak of the cross while others mock? It's because the Spirit of God has moved and come with power. Our faith rests Not in our feelings or how well the preacher preached, but in the finished work of Christ. It's in Jesus and in nothing else. The preacher's task, the Christian's task, your task when you share the gospel is to take the person by the hand and lead them to Jesus and make the introduction. We bring people to the one who saves The power resides in the spirit moving through the word, not in the preacher. That's why Paul, he says, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it's only Jesus Christ and him crucified that will save. Paul couldn't save. Amazing oratorical skill would be useless. They needed the gospel pure and undiluted. That's why he's committed. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I'm bringing before you. And we need to have this same resolve. We've got to have it. Because I'll I'll tell you, especially Christmas, the message we proclaim sounds kind of crazy, right? Let's be honest. We celebrate the birth of a baby to a virgin mother. That doesn't happen. The world is ready to discard it as myth. Some churches are trying to do so. So, why do we proclaim it? Because it's true. It's because our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It's true and it's glorious. Why do we celebrate the death of a man from over 2,000 years ago? It's because he's not an ordinary man, he is the God man. Truly God, truly man who lived a sinless life of perfect obedience to God. Who laid down his life for our sin, Such that on the cross, he's bearing the punishment for our sin. He was slaughtered as the Lamb of God for us. And he was buried... And he's raised on the third day. It is true. He is alive. And the message that we proclaim that you have to tell is not an interesting historical event that has no real bearing on our lives. This message saves because in this message we meet the Savior. Unlike anything else The gospel has the power to save because the Spirit of God moves to bring us to Jesus. It's not not head knowledge that you are believing. It's, It's a person. We're going to Jesus. We celebrate because Christ saves today. Our sins are forgiven today. We're reconciled to our God today. This is the offer of the gospel. And for the person in here that you know you're far from God, my prayer is that the Spirit of God moves in power to bring you to Jesus. The message of the gospel is spectacular because it's true. It's glorious because it's here that we are delivered. There's salvation nowhere else. Apart from Christ, we stay in our sin and under the wrath of God. and we need to understand the gospel to the watching world will never be cool enough it will never be entertaining enough paul understood this he preached in weakness and with fear and much trembling because in doing so he showed that the power to save resided in god our job your job is not to be cool it is to be clear So here's my plea. Don't forget Christ. During all of the busyness of this season, do not neglect Christ. Because what your kids need more than a new toy, than a new gaming system, than new clothes, is Jesus. What your spouse needs is Jesus. And if we are not intentional in our pursuit of Him then we will not pursue him. No one ever drifts, drifts towards God. You don't. The world needs to know not only the birth of Christ, but of his death and his resurrection. So we are to say Merry Christmas as Christians who have resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified during Christmas season, we are an Easter people. And so my prayer is that like Paul, we would be resolved among your friends, among your family, your coworkers, who everybody's traveling in to be together, that you would be resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's why we have hope and joy in this season. So let me pray. Our Father in heaven, We love you, we thank you for sending your son. Our hope lies in you. Not in how smart we are, not in how well we can perform, it's in Christ and him crucified. And I pray, like Paul, you would give us a resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we would be faithful to share in the opportunities that are around us, but we just often fail to see And we would share clearly so that it will be evident that the power to save lies not in our plausible words of wisdom. Our lofty speech or wisdom, but in the power of God. And I pray this for your glory and our good. In Christ's holy name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.